Hello, this is Kurt Frankum, and many of you know me as the host of the Leading Saints podcast. But Leading Saints isn't just a podcast. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we strive to create quality leadership content for Latter-day Saints in order to help them be better prepared to lead. With this mission comes a lot of expense, and we need additional help to continue our efforts in the coming year. In order to exchange value for value, we have created the Core Leader Community. To become a core leader, all you have to do is become a subscribing donor, which might be a monthly recurring donation or even a quarterly or yearly donation. For those who become a core leader through a subscription donation, you have access to our core leader library, which includes additional recorded interviews not available to the general audience, access to all virtual summits, discounts on products and conferences, and access to a private CoreCast feed where you will hear additional leadership thought and behind the scenes happenings. We are a community of leaders making this happen, and we need you a part of this mission. Text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to become a core leader today, or visit leadingsaints.org donate. Welcome back to the Leading Saints podcast. My name is Kurt Frankum, and I have the pleasure of being your host once again. Now, if you're new to Leading Saints, <laughs> This is great. I'm so glad you're here, that you found us, that you can now jump into our 350 or so episodes. Now, we record these episodes because our mission is to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead in life, at home, and even at church in the various callings we have. So I hope that you jump on over to leadingsaints.org and check out the many different resources we have there and the ways to consume that. Uh, one is obviously the podcast, but we have articles and virtual summits and videos and all sorts of stuff for you to jump into to become a better leader. Now, this episode was recorded, as I say this episode, I mean the one you're about to listen to, was recorded in Idaho Falls, Idaho, which has a special place in my heart since uh, my wife and I were actually sealed in the Idaho Falls Temple on J January 13th, 2006. So we're about to hit 14 years. Now, in this episode, we talk with Jason Hunt, who is a professor at BYU-Idaho. Now, while I was up in Idaho visiting my family in Blackfoot, I arranged an interview to meet Jason in Idaho Falls. It was recommended by Camden, who sent an email in and recommended I reach out to Jason, which I'm so glad you uh, sent me that email, Camden. And we give you a few shout outs through that, throughout this episode. But we dive into talking about just this uh, concept of how some leaders are very much the letter of the law and other leaders are very much the spirit of the law, right? And why is that? We talk about moral theories and uh, believe me, it's much interesting than maybe I just made it sound there. But fantastic discussion as far as applications and keyholder applications and when a bishop or any other keyholder should or shouldn't step forward and say, do this application and you'll be blessed? Or when do we sometimes assume an application is actually doctrine when really it's not? So fantastic discussion. Let's just jump into it. You're going to love it. Here's my interview with Jason Hunt. Today I am in uh, the beautiful city of Idaho Falls, Idaho, the place where my wife and I were sealed. And my wife is actually by me. Say hi. Hello. <laughs> she, she refused to take a microphone. So, but we just got done with the temple session. Uh, little temple brag for you there. But while we were in Idaho Falls, I thought, who could I reach out to? And uh, Jason Hunt came to the top of my list. So Jason, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. No, I'm glad we could connect. You you live in Rexburg, right? I live in Rexburg, yes. Cool. And uh, you teach at BYU-Idaho? I teach uh, the pre-med classes at BYU-Idaho. Nice. Are they pretty full? They're chuck full. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's part of It's either be, become a dentist or a doctor, right? Because everybody passes, but they're chuck full. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So give us a little, put yourself in the context. What's your background? How would, what would best describe you? My background, so I'm an endocrine physiologist. I earned a PhD in, in uh, endocrine physiology, wanted to do research, wanted to go to medical school, but found that medical school and research both put a, a time and demand on my family that was not, uh, I just didn't, uh, I didn't like it. Mm. So I instead went into teaching, which is an amazing job. Monetarily, not so much, <laughs> but with time, filthy rich. Yeah. That's, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. So when, where did this, uh, you wanted to go to med school, you said? Wanted to go to medical school. And, and when, when did that start? Was it as a little boy or what? Yeah, that was early, early. I've always loved frogs and snakes and <laughs> animals and, and helping creatures. And it just kind of grew into a, a love and a desire to understand the human body, and which led to maybe being able to help and fix the human body. 
But then I quickly understood that the time demands on that were yeah just didn't fit with my hierarchy. Yeah. In layman's terms, as far as uh, endocrine physiology, I'll get that by the end of the interview. What, how, what type of medicine is that? Or what are we talking about in that context? I would emphasize diabetes would be a great example. Any, any endocrine disorder, so growth hormone, progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, thyroid hormone. So it's, mm-hmm. the, it's the chemical signals that happen inside the body. Wow. Be some of my specialty areas. Yeah. And I mean, that's not just is where's the, uh, where's the femur and, and right, how to no. fix a broken bone. Right. I mean, this is pretty, pretty scientific and pretty intense, right? Correct. That's great. And you also have a unique experience serving in the church. You're currently serving as a bishop. Currently at, serving as a bishop. Yeah. And it was in a, you were in a stake presidency before that and then a bishop before that, right? I was, uh, yes. And I mean, I, I don't, this is not something to brag about because it's, <laughs> it's kind of annoying. My children have never been able to sit by with me at church. Oh, and it's sort of a frustration. Yeah. And my oldest is, is twenty four. Wow. So for the past twenty four years, like I've been Bishop Ricks or stand, yeah, yeah. Wow. Which isn't something to brag about. I'm, I'm actually, I get really excited for for times when I'm on vacation and I get to sit with my kids. Yeah, I bet, I bet. So, and and that time will come at some point, but yeah. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, maybe after this interview, sooner than later, (laughs) maybe this interview will do you in for sure. So, well, and I want to give a shout out to Camden, who is he a student yours or a TA or he is my current TA. He was a student of mine. Yeah. Nice. So I got an email from Camden a few weeks ago and said, you've got to interview Jason Hunt and, and get his perspective on things with, especially, I guess, in your world of being a YSA bishop. I mean, there's maybe, I've just noticed those leaders in YSA wards that really succeed, they have a much, I don't know, I don't want to categorize it wrong, but a more, the word that comes to mind is like a looser approach to it, but that's yeah. not what I mean, right? A but perspective, more, maybe. Yeah, perspective yeah. approach to it that really relates to that demographic. And because we're losing a lot of that demographic, right? Mm-hmm. So you really have to be careful with, with how you lead, right? Right. So you, you put down a few things I want to jump into, and we'll just see where the, where the conversation leads us. You talk about this concept of like, dealing with the culture that we live in versus it, and the rules, right? Because sometimes it's, as a leader, I remember as a bishop, I, I wanted to follow the handbook. I want to make sure I'm dotting every every I and crossing every T, right? So what what is your approach there? Any example come to mind as far as how you recognize the culture and the rules, but don't let it dominate or inflict those that you're leading? That's a, that's a great thought. I think maybe this started when I was bishop the first time and I was visiting a, a, a home of a, a family and this particular person hadn't been to church in like 40 years. And the reason why he hadn't come to church since then is because he showed up at church when he was a deacon, had a blue shirt on, no tie. And the leader at that time said, you cannot pass the sacrament. Mm. There was no worthiness issues with him. There was nothing wrong. He's a great young man, but he had a blue shirt, no tie. And that, that really offended him. Now, clearly that's his fault for being offended, but I just, it really hit home to me. And I thought, what? That's not doctrinal. Mm-hmm. These people haven't traveled anywhere. If you expect, you can expect a boy to show up in a white shirt and tie, but that's not a doctrine. I've, uh, one of my hobbies is traveling all over the nation on my motorcycle. I've been to all 48 states twice. I've been to a lot of different churches. And it's just when you go to a church where there's eight people yeah. and someone shows up that has the priesthood, you don't even question you don't hesitate. They have the authority. They're prepared. I think sometimes we get so culturally ingrained in the old school expectation that we offend people inadvertently. And that just really stuck with me. And I said, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I understand the handbook and I'm going to follow the handbook, about, but that's not in the handbook. Right, right. And, and there's so, a lot of wiggle room. There's a lot of stuff in yeah. there that's not in the handbook that we think are in the handbook. And so I really put an effort to make sure that I wasn't creating this situation where people were offended by culture and not doctrine. So was there any like specific things you did or routines or how did you implement that or or begin to carry that out? Oh, you know, I, I call it the app killer. The, just like these phones that have app destroyers, it's the application killer. So whenever I see something culturally, I just say, Nope, we're not doing it. Mm -hmm. Nope. We're not going to do it. It's a hard thing. You're sometimes kicking against the pricks because people hate that when you change. Yeah. Especially when there's tradition. Involved, especially right? when there's tradition. So I put a lot of emphasis on teaching people about the difference between doctrines, principles, and applications. Mm-hmm. 
And so I developed the applications. I didn't develop this. This is Elder Bednar. Yeah. He told me not to ever categorize them in his book, but I categorize them anyways, because I think it's easier. <laughs> and I, you know, there's applications there are keyholder applications and there's personal applications. And the problem is we get in this position where we just, we seem to bear testimony on personal applications. For example, someone will stand up on a testimony meeting and say in our YSA ward, I've gone to the temple once a week for the past three months, and that has saved my grades. Well, that's great, but that's a personal application. That is not doctrinal. You don't have to go to the temple every week, but sometimes our members panic and they think, well, maybe I should go to the temple once a week. So they'll go to the temple once a week and they'll, they'll actually do worse in school. Yeah, they'll fall behind. They don't have any time. <laughs> And you have to be very careful about understanding that's a personal application. That's great for them. And I think the Lord blessed them for doing that, but it's theirs. It's personal. And, and they, but they, you can't bear testimony yeah. in terms of expecting others to get the same benefit. So I want to make sure people don't miss this because I know Elder Bednar's talked about this model in, he's got that three book series. I forget mm-hmm. which one, I think it's throughout those books, yeah. but maybe in the, the first one, he, he, he weighs on it heavily, but if someone didn't, wasn't familiar with that, how would you yeah. explain that, that model to them? I would say the doctrines are principles that are eternal. They do not change, and they're just statements. They never tell you how or what to do, but they're just statements. For example, God is our Father. It's a doctrine, nice statement. Principles are embedded within the doctrines. So, for example, if you use logic, you could say if-then statements. So, if God is our Father, then we should worship Him. Okay, there's the doctrines and the principles. Still, we have no idea how. So, then the keyholders come in, the keyholder applications that say three-hour block or two-hour block, which changes all the time. The key thing to remember is doctrines and principles never change. They're eternal. They never change. But prince, but applications change. So keyholders can change the applications. So if we're God seen is a lot of that lately, yeah, that's what <laughs> President Nelson. It's amazing. He's the app killer. He's the he's leading the way. Destroy these applications. And so we have to make sure that we understand that if it does change, it's an application. And this is huge for this generation because gender. A horrible argument that comes out in this generation is. It's, it goes along something like this. Since God changed his mind about who to give the priesthood to, he will also change his mind about marriage and who can be married. And that's a, that's a fallacy. That doesn't work because the priesthood, who to give the priesthood, is an application. That's not a doctrine. But marriage, as defined by the proclamation, is a doctrine that doesn't change. So you have to be very careful about mixing and matching applications and doctrines or you'll get offended. And you may not understand certain situations. You say, well, he changed his mind here. Why didn't they change here? Well, because that's a doctrine that doesn't change, but this is an application and that changes. Yeah. And, and applications are important for all of us. Oh, yeah. They're crucial to our, how we worship and everything. Like you said, yeah. that, you know, the doctrine is how God is our eternal father and the principle is therefore we should worship him. And, and that may be, I go to the temple once right. a week, but that doesn't mean. Right. That's, that's your personal everybody. application yeah. and you should honor that and go yeah. your personal. I have a bunch of personal applications that I live in my own life, but I don't preach those. Yeah. I only preach the keyholder applications. And even then we get a little bit, uh, mixed up sometimes if we're teaching an, an application that was said in 1830 and, ne- and never repeated again. That's, yeah. that's probably not a keyholder application anymore. Yeah. A lot of my return missionaries get confused because their mission president, who has a keyholder application over them, says, for example, you should read Alma chapter 32 every day and you'll be blessed. Great. So then they come home and they say, well, if I read Alma 32, I'll be blessed. Like, mm, stop. You're no longer under the stewardship of that keyholder. Mm. And so that you can't preach that application. You can keep that as a personal application. That's no longer a keyholder application. So I teach that a lot as I talk to various people to make sure they understand what it is we need to be talking about. Yeah. You know, there's this concept that I often refer to as, you know, a doctrinal calculus where we're trying to turn the gospel into a math problem, like a formula. Like if you just do this, then this result comes just like your example of, oh, this person went to the temple once a week during this, this semester. So therefore you get good grades if you go to the temple, right? right? And, and we, we can really miss it that way if we oh, try and turn right. it into a calculus or a formula that, yeah. that, that everybody should follow. And then if you go to the temple once a week, you don't do very good in scores, it, you, you want, almost want to blame Heavenly Father. Yeah. That's a scary place to be because they're misinterpreting applications for doctrine. That, that scares me. Yeah. So I, I really put an emphasis on that. Yeah. More of the doctrines or the principles more like, well, as we sanctify ourselves, God blesses us through our, through our efforts, right. right? And so go figure out how to sanctify yourself. Correct. It's going to be different that's for That's unique for you and that's yeah. okay. And you can, so I would never turn anybody down and say, well, that's great for you. But if I'm sitting in that sacrament meeting, I say, wow, that's a neat personal application. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Maybe if I figure out that on my own, but I feel no guilt because the handbook says you should go to the temple as often as you can. Yeah. Well, that's not very specific. 
Yeah. And I love this term, this for, as far as the keyholder application. Is that a Bednar term or no, is that I'm something just, that I'm you... modifying it? Oh, okay. he doesn't listen. <laughs> I, I doubt he does. It just makes but... more sense to this. <laughs> so I categorize them. As he said, you shouldn't really try to categorize, but I did. Yeah. And I've modified it just a little bit to show he doesn't distinguish the applications as being twofold. But I've, as I've studied this, I started recognizing there are keyholder applications that hold true when the keyholder is saying them. For example, a bishop can actually promise his ward a certain result from keeping a commandment, and he may elaborate on a commandment. For example, the bishop may say, if you read the Book of Mormon 10 minutes a day, here's a keyholder promise. And God honors those keyholder promises. But if you move words or the bishop's released, pew, yeah, it yeah. goes. And that doesn't move it to a doctrinal application, which is non-changing. That's just an application for that particular time at that moment. Yeah, I, I love that. And I sometimes wonder, you know, especially being in leadership positions, it's easy to sort of default to these keyholder applications and almost bury those that follow you in keyholder applications. Because I often see it that, you know, maybe a new bishop gets put in place or a stake presidency, they come together and they say, all right, what's going to be our theme? All right, why don't we do this elaborate program? And we're going to, you know, I've seen these big, and again, there's nothing wrong with this, but, you know, big maps on the wall or in one church building, I saw like a, a tree and they had names on these different branches and, and they sort of made it an engaging um, effort in the ward to take a name to the temple, right? And then you'd write the name and mm-hmm. on the tree. And, and that's great. But sometimes we sort of burden our people right. with so much applications, keyholder mm-hmm. applications that they yeah. can't, they don't have time for their own application. And it's important to recognize if you're, if you're a, you know, a bishop or a member that's, or a stake president or even a branch president, you can't make a keyholder applications as different than the prophet. There's a hierarchy. You're right. <laughs> you, have to, you have to be within the key. Your, your keys are trumped. So you can't go against your stake president. Stake president can't go against the prophet. It's a great model that everybody should come down. So you can modify. President Nelson said we should read the Book of Mormon. So if I'm a bishop, I feel like, yeah, I think I can modify, maybe elaborate on that particular application mm-hmm. for that moment. But you have to be very careful not to overburden people for sure. Yeah. So do you talk a lot about this? This model and applications is your oh, yeah. time as a YSA bishop? First thing I do when the ward changes over a new semester, that's the first lesson. In all of my classes, that's a lesson. Mm. I just want to spread it out as quickly and as much as I can to understand that's an application. Don't be offended because I have found so many get offended in the church because of the applications, mm. misapplications and personal applications that are meant or implied to be doctrines. Yeah. The roommate who cuts the cord on the television because it says my family doesn't watch TV on Sunday. Therefore, this is a doctrine you don't study on Sunday. False. Yeah. That's not a doctrine. That's a personal application. If you want to apply that, that's fine. If you don't want to study on Sunday, fine. Mm-hmm. But you can't force your roommates because <laughs> it's a doctrine or some kind of thing. And it's really bothersome to me if, if we misapply those. <laughs> that's interesting. I'm sure as a, as a family ward bishop, you had you know, a husband and wife in your office sort of wrestling with things, but now you get roommate and roommate in oh, your yeah. office wrestling with different things, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Let's see. I want to, uh, as far as the, you know, g- going back to the, as far as these cultural norms and, and, and I guess cultural norms, I guess I appreciate this perspective you put it in because they're sort of like applications or even sometimes keyholder applications that have sort of gone out of control and gone outside their boundaries. And, luck. and then suddenly, you know, no, you're supposed to wear a white shirt. You know, that's, that's what you're supposed to do. It says it somewhere, or I, I, <laughs> I always give this phrase a bad time, but the unwritten order of things, it's in the unwritten order of things. So it, will somebody write these down so we know what the unwritten is? So, so it could be written, right? And we sort of just tag it there, but um, they turn in these cultural norms that kind of go out of control and can really be difficult to wade through. So, any, any other approaches you mentioned, you know, the first of the semester, this lesson you do and talking yeah. about this model, anything else you do to sort of put the, keep the, the culture at bay so that these young single adults can progress? Yeah, that's a great question. There is, I also like to talk, take a philosophical approach because how you view these cultural things depends on what kind of moral theory you subscribe to. There's a lot of different moral theories, but there's primarily four of them that I like to talk about. There's the consequentialist or the utilitarian that, that, that uses consequences as their measure. So, um, for example, if you're the, the great example is Jews in the basement, you got a hundred Jews in the basement and the Gestapo knocks on your door and says, are you harboring Jews? What do you say? The consequentialist lies flat out. No. Because the consequences, you always look for the greatest good. Mm-hmm. So a consequentialist, if you're a bishop and you're a consequentialist, you're looking at consequences, not rules, not, you're just, what's the greatest good? 
Now, that's interesting because a member of the church that's a consequentialist, which is many of us, um, they sometimes will bend a few rules. They may lie as long as they feel like it's for the greatest consequence. Mm -hmm. The opposite of that is the obligation theorist who obeys rules. This is... um, these people are interesting. I've met bishops who are obligation theorists. I feel bad for them because the rules are so important. And for example, it's difficult as a bishop to know, um, to determine consequences. You're a judge in Israel and somebody does a particular thing and you have to, it's an irreconcilable thing. So it has to be paid for somehow. So they come to the key holder, the bishop, and they say, you know, here's my irreconcilable thing. I need help reconciling. That's a, that's a major role of the bishop. So the bishop then has to come up with reconcilable terms. If you're an obligation theorist, that is excruciatingly painful because there's no rules. Mm. So I've seen bishops create spreadsheets that say, if you do this, you get to do that. If you do this, you do that. You do, th-. And that's, I don't blame them. I don't judge them because I recognize, oh, that is hard, but it, it it's not practical. You kind of tie yourself in knots a little bit, right? It's not practical because yeah. what the handbook says, it depends on, you know, how many covenants the person's made, how many times they've made it, how public it is. There's a lot of different rules that go into this matrix and it's so hard. But people that are obligationists, they adhere to rules. They love rules. They want to know the rules. And so they get really caught up sometimes in culture if they believe it's a rule. Then you have the divine, the divine theorists, divine command theorists, and um, they they're kind of tough because it's whatever God says, and so they get caught up in it too. Sometimes, if if they believe that God has said this through a particular person, and they got you got to be really careful there because if it's not coming through the right lines, they can get really confused. Mm. And then there's the egoism; those people, what's best for them. You can imagine if you come into a ward and knowing these, these different kinds of things, you, you can't talk to the people the same way. The consequentialist, you have to argue with consequences. You have to show them the greatest good. You have to teach that way. The obligationist, you have to, you have to go to the rules. They don't care about consequences. It doesn't matter. It's just rules. And so you have to maybe show them that the rules are, are, are wrong. I have a funny example with that, talking with that. I had a student um, come in my office, a wife. She had her husband in tow. She sat down, shut my door, and she says, uh, I've heard about you. I said, okay. That's never a good sign. <laughs> and she says, my, I've asked, I asked my husband if I was fat, and he said yes, and I'd like a second opinion. Wait, was this in your bishop's this my, office? No, this is my your, school office. school office. I'd never great. met them before. <laughs> she has this question. I'm no, there's no way I'm answering this. So I look at him, and I, you know, just stalling, I said, uh, why did you say that? And his answer was key. He says, well, I want my wife to know that I'm honest no matter the consequences. I'm like, Ooh, obligation theorist. Uh-huh. Perfect. Uh-huh. So I'm going to go to the rules and immediately said, well, how do you, how do you, did you determine your wife is fat? What are you using? Waist to hip ratio or body fat percentage? Did you measure her? Is she done a bioimpedance? What have you done? And he, of course he hadn't done any of those things. And after a conversation, we realized he was using Hollywood as his parameter mm. for his wife. And he was completely wrong. And when we understood that I was able to then say, look, you're actually lying. Because your honesty is not honest. So it's a different approach, right? If you're talking to an obligationist versus a consequentialist so versus a divine command versus an egoism. And I think it's, it's been crucial to understand those philosophical moral theories on the way people make decisions. Yes. So when we talk about moral theories, are these like D4 moral theories or is there all dozens of them? Oh, there's lots. There's, you know, I don't know how many there are. But these are kind of the four general the ones big that you hitters. see. Most of them are going to fall under one of these major categories as being that kind. Yeah. Just offshoots of those. So this is the four majors. Aristotelian is probably the other one. That's Aristotle and virtue ethics would be the, the big one. Hmm. But that's such a hard one to define. And that's kind of where we should be as members of the church of Jesus yeah. Christ of Latter-day Saints. So- the other ones are interesting and they may not even know the obligation theorist is a hard place because they're so good at keeping rules. They're so good at keeping rules, but they'll do it at the expense of friendships, at the expense of anything. So the obligation theorist says, if, are you harboring Jews? Yes. Why? Because you don't lie. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, what about all of those Jews? Yeah. Now they're all then executed, right? Yeah. Yeah. But the co- obligation theorist says, you don't lie. There's no consequences in there. Mm-hmm. Their reasoning, and they're so frustrating to talk to if you don't know that, and they're so offensive. But once you recognize, oh, oh, okay, they're just using these universal principles, then you can respect them. We need them in our society, 
And they just use these rules. That's most important, more important than people. And if you get a bishop like that, well, it's going to be rules. Uh-huh. That's the way it's going to be. It's rules, 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 rules. And you just hope that the rules are coming from the right place. Yeah. And it sounds like it's not necessarily like these individuals are are wrong or they're just different. They're different, but they all feel like they're right in their moral mm-hmm. box. And that's amazing. Every one of them are right and they're grounded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think the best leadership should be able to move through these quadrants with ease. You should be able to the jump. For example, this is what Nephi does. Nephi shows up, Laban's drunk, Nephi, and God says, divine command, kill Laban. Nephi says, no way, Jose. Because he's a, the, I've never the obligation killed. this. Yeah, right? he's an obligation. There's initially, uh-huh. he says, no, thou shalt not kill. Uh-huh. We'll kill Laban. And then he says, well, I've never killed another man. Egoism. Nephi, it's better that one man perish than a nation dwindle in unbelief. That's a consequentialism. And eventually has to trump everything with divine command and say, Nephi, kill Laban. Yeah. So he moves through all of these quadrants really interesting. And I think that when you understand those, when you talk with people, it's a lot better experience when you realize, oh, okay, this person's an obligation theorist. I can't speak to them with consequences. They won't understand me. We need to talk about rules. Yeah. Or this person's a consequentialism. Okay. I need to, we need to find the best, greatest good for this situation. I love those because that's where I kind of tend to fall. Yeah. So these are almost like, you know, you, you hear about like personality types yeah. or quizzes. I mean, oh, yeah. these are sort of a, a different. It's the same thing. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. red, blue, yellow, greens or, or the, you know. <laughs> the disc model or there's all sorts of different. And ones. I use the moral theories based on philosophy yeah. and ethics. And I've just found that to be a fascinating thing to, and when I teach the kids about this, they just love it. Yeah. They kind of start automatically categorizing themselves. So Camden who wrote in here, he's an obligation theorist. And I've called him out on it. He just laughs and laughs and laughs. He goes, I know, I don't know what else to do. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just, I can't, it's wrong. It's, <laughs> <laughs> and we'd have these discussions back and forth. And he's great because obligation theorists, you can give them your credit card, your social security number. They'll never abuse it. They're wonderful people. But <laughs> Make great TAs. Make right? great TAs. <laughs> they never cheat. They never lie. But if someone comes up and says, you know, my, my dog got sick. And died, and I didn't get the quiz. So can you give me a break? The obligation theorist says, you missed the deadline. They don't even hear the other stuff. It's uh-huh. like, well, you missed the deadline. Could you give me a break? Well, you missed the deadline. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and of course, we're not talking about Camden. Of course not. <laughs> no, Camden would never do that. <laughs> never, but and, and it sounds like it's not necessarily that, again, it's not like these individuals are wrong, but just it's so helpful to re- realize what framework you, yeah. that you're acting under. Oh, absolutely. Right? And so especially when we talk, your initial question was about the culture. If you don't understand people that when you understand the moral frameworks, then how they respond to the culture makes so much more sense because the consequentialism, the consequentialist hates rules, mm-hmm. hates rules. Kind of BYU-Idaho and you're listening to the honor code and you're a consequentialist, you hate it. It makes no yeah. sense. Uh-huh. I mean, everybody has to wear the same What's the BYU-Idaho. Big deal, right? Yeah. It's like, why do we have to wear the same exercise outfit? Why, 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 why? And they're just want to know. They just want to know the reason. And, the worst thing you can do to a consequentialist is say, it's not important for your eternal salvation. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's, yeah. That's what happened to me. It, it, it just about killed me when I was in that, those stages of faith and trying to figure out. And they said, it's not important for your eternal salvation. Oh, yeah. It, it, I know that, but I want to know. But sometimes the old, old guard, the obligation is say, read your scriptures and pray. And don't worry about things that aren't important. Yeah. Well, that destroys a consequentialist. Yeah. And I would imagine a consequentialist, if you came to them with a heavily researched study that shows yeah. if everybody dresses the same in, in the gym, they become wealthy later on. Like, like if you, if you could show them the consequence, this is why we do it. They'd yeah. be like, oh, well, that's okay. exactly it. That's what all they need to do. Obligation theorists, you just say, wear same clothes. Okay. Right. That's the rule. No questions right. asked. Or the divine command, God told you to wear the same clothes. Okay. No problem. <laughs> yeah. And I would imagine in this stage, you know, in the YSA stage, 18 to 25, like it's, it's such a developmental phase that they are, that some of these responses to what their uh, moral theories can be greatly exaggerated as, yeah. as far as the consequences of them, right? And your ability to process this in your prefrontal cortex, that's 26 years. It takes 26 years for that thing to come online. So your ability to reason is reduced mm-hmm. when you're in that age group and it, it's real hard. You have a, a bunch of faith crises as you're moving through these cognitive levels of trying to determine oh, who am I and, and why do we do this and, and what is that? Yeah. And if you don't recognize that, you could really hurt someone inadvertently by not responding appropriately. Yeah. And, and I appreciate this 
you mentioned, you know, faith crises and so forth. Like it's so easy for, like to me, I, w- I would guess, obviously I've taken no quiz or anything, but I would, I'm definitely in the consequentialist uh, area because I find myself at times and others, they'll get to this point of saying like, what, like what, what happened to them? Like, why, why is it such a big deal to them? Like they found out the stuff about Joseph Smith, like yeah. what's the big deal? Like nobody said he was perfect. Right. But we have to realize that a lot of them are coming, especially through a two-year mission or an 18-month yeah, mission. It, that's a very obligation theorist uh, structure. Oh, yeah, context, huge. Right? Yeah. Because it's all obedience. Obedience. And now they're coming out of there just high on rules, yeah. right? And Great. they want more rules. And then suddenly there's nuance. And there's amb- ambiguity. Yeah, ambiguity. Yeah. It's crushism, right? In fact, you can edit all this out, but here's a, <laughs> I have to tell you what happened to me. Because when I was seven years old, I sat in a Sunday school and heard the story of Noah's Ark. I loved it. I mean, I'm a budding biologist. Animals, yeah. you know, and, and this, this buff Santa Claus bringing all these animals into an ark in a boat. How, how would you not love that? Yeah. And Noah instantly became my favorite, ultimate favorite prophet. But when I got into college, I started taking zoology classes and I learned that one elephant requires 50 gallons of water and 500 pounds of vegetation per day, hmm. per day to survive. One so elephant. Times two. And- yeah. So I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. I was in calculus at the time. So I thought, well, I wonder what the cubic feet of the ark is. So I, I figured that I think it was something like a million cubic feet. And I realized, you know what? Noah could have fed one animal, one elephant for 28 days. Supposedly he had all the animals. And it, this is a real faith crisis for yeah, me. Sure. So I go to my mentors, I go to my adults and I say, hey, explain Noah. And, and, and my, the response, don't worry about it. It's not important for your mm-hmm. turn of salvation because they hadn't thought about it. Well, it really bothered me. It was a cognitive shift. I didn't want to leave the gospel because there was a lot of people in there that I respected that were intelligent. And I figured, well, they, they must know something I don't know. So I'm going to hang out here. But I wasn't happy. Mm-hmm. I'd sit in Sunday school and people talk about Noah's Ark. I'd sit in the back and, you know, whatever. <laughs> Nobody thought about it. And so that caused my, my mind to shift into a different level to say, okay, could Noah have existed? What are the possibilities? Well, I guess he could have had baby animals. Maybe God fed them with manna from heaven. They were all constipated. Maybe there was multiple arcs. Maybe the flood was local. Maybe there wasn't a flood. Maybe Noah didn't exist. I just processed as much as I could trying desperately to grab onto what I felt my primary teacher had lied to me about and my authority figures had lied to me. And it threw me in a tailspin. And I didn't, but I didn't have the cognitive ability to really choose which of those avenues was, was more valid. So I sat with it and I sat with it. And as my brain developed, I started to realize, what do I know about Noah? Well, the Book of Mormon, which I have a testimony of, no problem there. That's easy. Does the Book of Mormon mention Noah? Ah, it does. But it doesn't mention a boat. But it does mention Noah. So I'm okay with Noah. The Doctrine and Covenants mention Noah. I got some, some church history that mentions Noah and about angels and Gabriel and different things. And I thought, okay. So then I read about other boat builders in the Book of Mormon. You got Nephi. He doesn't seem to refer to Noah. But the brother of Jared, now he refers to Noah. He's got three, he's got a bunch of boats with a problem. He can't see, can't breathe, can't, can't steer. So he goes to the Lord. And of course, everybody knows the story. And he says, we'll figure out the can't see part, which I, I just baffled me because why? Brother Jared says, well, I'll build a fire. Nope. Can't do that. We'll have a window. Nope. It'll be dashed to pieces. And I, it baffled me for years. Why that one? And I would ask people and they'd be like, well, because spirituals, spiritually speaking, that was the one that made sense. So we could see, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense at all. But there's a cross-reference there in Genesis chapter 6, verse 23, that says, talks about a window in the ark, but the Hebrew for that is glowing stone. Mm. And suddenly I'm thinking, wait a minute, if brother Jared had the record of Noah and Noah had a boat with a glowing stone, that would make sense. He would go to the mountain and break up all these stones and say, here, here, God, I don't know how to make these things turn on like Noah, but this is what I got. So he had the ability actually to figure that out on his own. Which is really cool. And the brother of Jared actually took two of his animals, but only of his flocks. So I'm starting to piece things together saying, ah, Noah could have worked or he might not work. I'm totally fine with either one. He could have been just a metaphor, but he could have actually worked. But we're going to have to modify the story just a little bit according to revealed scripture, Book of Mormon. And what a journey. Wow. But this is years and cognitive development and processing and people that understood that helped me by just giving me a couple of things. Instead of saying, don't worry about it. That's not important. That, that destroyed me. Yeah. I need to worry about it. I know it's not important for my eternal salvation, but dang it, I want some resolution. Yeah. So what do you say to students that come to you and, with, and, and you sort of maybe are tempted or others would be tempted to say, that's not important right now. How do you respond to that? How do you encourage them? Oh, I can't. I can't do that. No, we, we'll, we'll talk about it. If I don't know, I say, give me two weeks, hmm. two weeks and let me come up with something. 
I love that. And come back. Yeah. And sometimes we just have to learn and say, yeah, there's not enough there. We're going to have to put that in the weird book. That goes with the <laughs> dinosaurs and the other stuff. Weird book, put it in there. And I don't know. Yeah. And, and, but you know. And that's different than saying that is not important oh, yeah. to your salvation. right? But yeah. believe it or not, we don't have to do that that often. Yeah, it's true. We can speculate and we do keep in mind, it's not important for our eternal salvation. It's not doctrine. We get that, but we can still be open and discuss and students really appreciate that. Yeah. Just be open to, to say, well, maybe they were wrong. Yeah. Cause we don't have all the answers on Noah, but it's sort of fun to sort of play in that yeah. pond for a while. Right. right. And, and you found a lot of deep inspiration just right. being there. And me Wrestling saying, maybe Noah didn't happen. Oh, the old guard and the obligation theorists, that, that can't, <laughs> they, they can't handle that. Yeah. And therefore they labeled me as liberal. I'm like, that's, I'm not liberal. I just, <laughs> it doesn't take it much didn't happen. in Rexburg, Idaho to be liberal. <laughs> maybe Noah didn't happen. I don't know. Maybe he did. I know that Noah existed. I'm good with that. Noah was a prophet. I'm, yeah. I'm fine with that. Angel Gabriel. I mean, yeah. there's I'm, lots of, yeah. I'm okay with Noah. Did he have a boat with a bunch of animals? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> How that worked, who knows? I'm, I'm thinking he had a boat. Yeah. And he had a glowing stone, apparently. Yeah. And there's a lot of poop involved. And there's probably I mean, a lot of poop, but a lot of animals. I mean, yeah. all the animals. No way, Jose. Nice. Nice. That's interesting. So, you know, going back to the, just the concept of personality, you know, this sound like the moral theory sound like the world's oldest personality models, right? A lot of the ways. And I've, I'm, I'm always wrestling with personality models and, and it seems like everybody's got their favorite one and, and some of them like swear by it. Oh, like yeah. in every person they meet, they're analyzing. Oh, yeah. And for me, like, I just don't have the bandwidth, it seems to like to process somebody I'm meeting with. I'm just trying to hear the words they're saying. And so, I mean, how does this fit into the typical, because it's interesting to learn about, but like the day-to-day application of, of, of a bishop understanding moral theories yeah. and then, and using it. What do you think? That's a great question. I, I think I'll, I'll just steal from Stephen R. Covey. He says, most of us do not listen with the intent to understand. Sometimes with a bishop, you, you have a, a set response. You have this, this book that you're supposed to do this thing to these people. You're supposed to make them all amazing temple goers, scripture reading every day in prayer. Yeah, I mean, we would like to help people, but ultimately, Bishop, I need to understand someone. Mm. I don't care if they're not reading their scriptures every day. I don't care. I want to know who they are. I want to know what they're good at, what spiritual gifts they have. I want to know who they are. I want to love them and I want to care for them. That's, that's all I want. And I'm only going to be with these kids for like 12 weeks, maybe a couple of years. We have to create a friendship so that when they run into these ruts, they'll call back to me. And I think some people think that they've got a bishop that's going for five years or four years or two years or however long your bishop thing is. You've got to, you've got to like do this great thing. And I just, I think the bishop is a fast track to friendship. I would be friends with all of these people. I just would have not found them as soon as I did as mm. bishop. So. I'm not trying to change or direct. I would like them to be better people, but I got to, I got to, I got to love them first. And I can't love somebody unless I know them. And that's the, that's the thing, right? It's a day-to-day Bishop thing. So yeah, personality, this personality, that I don't know, but it just helps me listen instead of try to answer. And it seems like it brings more empathy to these conversations when I can catch myself sort of falling into this. I'm, I'm perceiving someone, I'm thinking, what is up with this person? Like, where does this thinking come from? I don't get how their brain works. And then yeah. to just think, oh, wait, well, there's just a, some different moral theories that they're Perfect. acting under. Right? It's empathy. You, yeah. you nailed it on the note. It's yeah. Being able, having the knowledge to understand how people think and process, that's empathy. And meeting different people and, and actually listening. I truly love to listen. And I want to know stuff yeah. about them. And, and I like to give them moral challenges. I like to say, ooh, 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 how about this? What if you're in a, there's a train coming and, and it has that you have to hold the lever, whether it goes right or left. And, and on the right side is your sister tied to the track. And on the left side are four people that you don't yeah. know. What do you do? Wait, don't they have a name for that? With that? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. They do. I, don't, I, don't, I forget what it is. <laughs> but I love stuff like that because the people laugh and then, and then you just get to listen. And there's uh-huh. no right or wrong answer there. It's yeah. just, it's what you feel. And then what's important is why you're feeling that. And, and believe it or not, that can help you understand someone and you just respect them yeah. immediately. Yeah. Anything else with, with moral theories, this, this approach as far as leading and any applications that work for you, again, that may work for only you, but. <laughs> well, I think maybe, maybe outside of moral theories, and this is kind of related, but it's the way the brain processes and things. Yeah, that's so, where I want to go next. Yeah. So I like, there's one story and you, and again, this is, this is probably worse than the Noah story. So, 
But I, a lot of kids struggle with these pornography things. It's a, it's a running, it's a rampant epidemic. The people behind the scenes of social media, they've, they have brain addiction science down packed. And most of us aren't aware of that, that we're not aware of how good they are at manipulating our brains. One of the things I like to give kids is a little bit of knowledge. So I use an analogy that everybody understands. At some point today, your bladder's going to fill with, it's going to stretch. It's going to send a signal up your spinal cord to your brain. And it's, your brain's going to send a signal to your prefrontal cortex and say, we have a problem down here. We need to, to resolve it. Now what happens next is super interesting. If you're sitting in a place like this, you don't just relieve your bladder. <laughs> if you're public or in class, you don't do it. You just won't. Even though the signal's there and saying you need to do this, you're aware it's a, it's a craving, as you could say. It's a, it's a powerful stimulus. You won't do it. And when I ask people, why won't you? And they're like, well, because it's wrong. But how do you know it's wrong? Have you ever done it? No, but I can imagine be bad. <laughs> how do you know this? And I just push and push and push them because nobody does. You all kind of know intrinsically you shouldn't wet your pants when you have to go. Yeah. So <laughs> what has to happen though is the prefrontal cortex has to shut that signal off. It has to quench it. And it's very good at that. So then you go to the restroom and if all the stalls are full, it's unlikely you'll use the sink. You're still, even though you're in a place where you could relieve your bladder, your prefrontal cortex says, no, not appropriate. When the stall opens up, you look around, prefrontal cortex says, okay, this is an appropriate time. It allows that signal to go and do all of its things and relieve the bladder. So why is it then when you're sitting in a conversation and you have an addiction pornography craving no guy or girl is going to look at that or deal with that when I'm sitting in the room with them because the prefrontal cortex says no way, not mm -hmm. appropriate. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, if they find themselves in a spot which they think is appropriate, they'll relieve that hold. And what I try to get them to do is you got to have a, a degree of mindfulness and say, wait a minute, if it's wrong in all of these other places, why is it becoming right to do in this particular what is your brain? What are the arguments? What are the justifications? What are you telling your prefrontal cortex and convincing it so good that it can relieve its hold? Because they don't know this. And so I'll have these boys text me nightly numbers, one, two, or three. Every time I get a three, that means oops. And I say, okay, what did you justify? And they respond back, I don't know. I said, baloney, you told yourself something to make it okay. Because they've got to be more aware of what they're doing with their mind. And, and the justifications are just fascinating. Mm. You know, they range from, well, I've already made a mistake. So what does it matter? To, well, other people, they don't keep the word of wisdom. They're, heck, they're, they're obese and they go to the temple. So this is not as bad as them. I mean, the justifications are amazingly elaborate. But until we identify what their brain is using as the argument, we can't fix it. Yeah. So as a bishop, I, I would imagine a YSA ward, you're... Like many others, this is an overwhelming problem at yeah. times. So is this sort of the, the approach that you take is focusing on, okay, let's identify what that justification is. Yeah, that's the first step. I yeah. want to know what the justification is. I want to know the pattern. The brain works in patterns. I want to know how often. And, you know, it's very important. They have to feel safe with me. So yeah. the last thing I'm going to do is slap them, penalize them, <laughs> take their recommend away, beat them up. They've, they've been through seven or eight bishops that have tried various things. I'm not saying that's bad, but I'm not going to be the one to lay down the law. I want to know every single time. And in order for them to be able to do that, they have to feel very comfortable with me. Mm -hmm. And I'm okay. So I want them to be comfortable and send me the numbers. And every time I never say bad job, I just say, cool, thanks for being honest. Can you tell me what the justifications were? And I push them until I get one. Mm -hmm. And then we meet once a week and we sit down and say, all right, tell me how you would argue against this justification. This is your brain. You've got to argue against it. Why is this bad? And then we talk about it and we kind of go through it. Is it successful? Well, it is as long as I'm around. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if I, I don't know how long it's going to last. So it sounds like with these justifications, you know, going back to the moral theories, like it, it's almost as if they, uh, they can begin in that obligation theorist, but then go to the consequential. Oh, yeah. what, what's the big deal? There's yeah, no, perfect. the consequence isn't huge here. You found right? the link. Oh, there we You go. found the link to my response. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Understanding who they are. An obligation theorist actually has a horrible time with shame and guilt. Yeah. Because they're so upset with themselves, so upset. The consequentialist is like, eh, oh, well, start again tomorrow. <laughs> right. Yeah. But the obligation theorist is just. There, a rule has been broken. It has been A broken. commandment has been broken. And they know it. And oh, can you imagine if you came in as a leader and added to that guilt and shame mm. for this poor obligation theorist by taking away the recommend 
taking away their church calling, taking away the sacrament. Mm. For a consequentialist, yeah, that's probably okay. But for an obligationist, you've destroyed him. You've just destroyed them. And I, oh, I just, it's so disheartening for me sometimes. I mean, I had these, I've had cuts come in and, and say, look, I, I looked at another bikini and here's my recommend. I, I know I won't be able to take a sacrament for six months. And Bishop, if, if I need to, if you need to hit me with a, with a whip, I'm ready. Yeah. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. It's not that I don't agree. I think that's, you should never do that, but mm-hmm. gee whiz, let's thank goodness. It's at least that. Yeah. Yeah. Now let's see if we can fix that by, by creating a, a system where they trust and love. Yeah. And I love that. Just that the stepping back and re- recognizing, you know, the moral theory in which they're approaching the situation. And rather than, I think sometimes we, we take the moral theory that we're in and, and we may be a very uh, obligation theorist bishop. And we want to say, do you know how bad this is? Oh, yeah. Like, no, I'm no. going to throw the book at you until you understand you're obviously not getting it because right. <laughs> you've been here many times before. So I'm going to keep throwing this rule at you until you finally wake up. Right. And that, and all we're doing is casting shame. Right. And that's scary because I sometimes will make those mistakes because my quadrant, I've got to be able to move out of it. So when I get a situation, I say, okay, I got to move through these quadrants really quick and see which is the best one. Yeah. And I found that to be essential. Sometimes I'm in the wrong one to begin with. Like, oh, and I think sometimes maybe I err in the direction of being a little bit too merciful and yeah, that's there. Yeah. But I, I mean, I, my, me personally, I want to, I'd rather end my leadership there than yeah. coming down too hard. because you're a consequentialist. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> this is so helpful. But finally meeting myself after all these years. <laughs> so this is, this is really helpful because where before you, like I could never understand why with some individuals I, I felt maybe more prompted to maybe come down on them a little bit. Like, you know, this is, we need to set some boundaries here or others I didn't. And yeah. I sort of you used to get bad, you like, panic. oh, you know, this person, and a lot of people come, you know, especially when disciplinary councils are involved, like, well, this person did the same thing and they got disfellowshipped and this person got excommunicated. Like, yeah. what's the deal? As if it's, you know, legal theory that yeah. <laughs> type of thing. And that, that, that's, you're correct. As an obligation is you don't understand that. Yeah. If someone cheats, they should get this consequence, no matter how they cheated. And I, I cannot, I just don't subscribe to that at all. Yeah. I think the Holy Ghost knows what needs to happen. Yeah. And so if we're open to that and we understand that there are going to be different consequences for, for perhaps the same sin, but a different person, I think that's so much more powerful. Yeah. The Holy Ghost can speak to you. Yeah. And it's, I, I imagine, you know, sometimes when I'm in that obligation theorist mode, I'm thinking, why doesn't, I wish they would just, you know, outline in the handbook, if they did this, then do this, this, and this, oh, yeah. but how inspired is it that our, you know, key holders, they give a lot of wiggle room in the handbooks because that would not be appropriate. Right. right. And you can helpful. imagine how difficult though, to be an obligation theorist and be a bishop, how difficult that is. I mean, I, I don't get mad at them. I'm just like, oh man, I don't blame them. That is so that's so tough. I mean, some kids will say, well, this bishop did this to me and it was only this. I'm like, well, it's that bishop and he's the key holder. God loves him for it. He's an obligationist. That's the way it goes. Mm-hmm. It's just like when students come to me and say, so-and-so, I had a 93.7% and 94 is A. That guy wouldn't, or that girl wouldn't wouldn't round up. And I just look at him and say, well, they're obligationists. Well, what do I do? Nothing. Uh-huh. That's dumb. I said, well, that's because you're a consequentialist. You're looking at it from consequences, but they're an obligation. They feel morally grounded. Relax. Nothing to do. You take your A minus. Yeah. yeah. And I know there's, there's leaders out there in, in one of these, uh, the theories that an individual can get so frustrated on the outside. Like, I don't know how to deal with this leader. And so right. it's easy to sort of go to church and disengage and just yeah. check out until that new leader shows up, but to just have some empathy that, okay, that's yeah, who they are that's and, who they are. and work within that. Respect them for it. Yeah. I respect it. If I'm with an obligation theorist, I'm like, okay, well, that's the end. Yeah. You can't argue with consequences. They made the decision. They're morally grounded. Okay. Yeah. Such it is. Yeah. And sure. I've dealt with both all kinds of leaders, sometimes above me, sometimes below me. It's, it's a level of empathy if you understand these. Yeah. So help me understand deeper, like the divine command theorist. Uh, this is maybe something who there's, there's a situation that isn't answered by the handbook. And so they maybe have to ponder, pray fast over it. Yeah. And then they feel like they receive an answer. And then that, then they kind of use that as the rule. Like, no, yeah. God's inspired me. This is yeah. what I feel is right. And this is what we must do. Right? And that's a scary place to be if you're not grounded. If you're not doctrinally grounded and, you've, and you're in there, this is the people that can pray over what soup can to buy mm. before they leave. The, this is the missionary who won't leave the, the apartment until he receives revelation. And that's 
I, Kyle, it's so hard because you don't want to discourage that because you want them to, to listen to the Spirit. But on the other hand, they have to be doctrinally grounded. So the doctrine of covenants will tell you, it doesn't matter where you go. Go east, go south, go north, go west. It doesn't matter where you go. Just go. Mm-hmm. Just go. And that's, that's the doctrine. That is actually so. When they're misapplying the divine command, that's a real difficult place to be. Yeah. A misapplying. That's a suicide bomber who's misapplying divine command. Yeah. yeah, there's some extreme examples Extremists. where it's dangerous. It almost turns into abuse in a lot of it cases. It is horrible. Yeah. And we have that problem in our culture. We have that problem. And I found individuals that are struggling in that realm are a lot more difficult actually to deal with than the consequentious or even the obligation theorists because they feel as inspired, but it's not coming through the right vein. I mean, the mm-hmm. early church history leaders had the same problem. Joseph Smith was He's like, well, I don't know. Maybe they did get revelation. And, and then God would say, no, you're the one. Uh-huh. You're the prophet. This is how the revelation comes through. Oh, and it's the same thing. So we had this scare with Julie Rowe, you know, and, and she seemed like she was giving some good advice, but mm-hmm. she doesn't have the stewardship or, or to do that. Uh-huh. And you have to be very careful with the divine command. Yeah. But on the other hand, you want to be guided by the Holy Ghost. Yeah, right. And that's the interesting thing about this this gospel. And it's and it's intriguing. I mean, I, I'm sort it's of awesome. Yeah. But it's scary. Yeah. I'm a scientist. I love logic. I just I would love for God to teach me like to preach me or uh, treat me like the brother Jared. Figure it out. Thank you. Yeah. Because I can I can do this. But when he when he says no, I think you should do this and it doesn't make logical sense. Oh, yeah. My brain just is like, oh no. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> Am I off? Am I off? Yeah. And uh, I know there's some leaders out there that they sort of feel like they've gotten this inspiration. They almost get hung up on it. Like, no, this, like it, it, it consumes them and which maybe that's a good thing, but sometimes they don't leave wiggle room for those around them. They just feel like, okay, I guess this is what we're doing. Right. And they, they yeah. miss that opportunity to sell the vision or sell. Here's some common examples that'll happen in a YSA ward. Um, a guy comes in and says, I've received revelation that she should marry me. And I say, false. You can't receive revelation. This will still happen. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, no, you can't do that. You can receive revelation. You should primarily marry her. But if she doesn't receive her own, then, then you're out of luck. Or I, you know, every, she was just perfect and, and we got along so well, but I, you know, I prayed about it and, and I just don't feel right. And I say, false, you're wussing out. <laughs> you don't want to own up. You don't want to make a commitment. And now you're blaming it on God. And they say, what? I said, yeah, because when you blame stuff on heavenly father, it's the drop the mic argument. No one can argue against you. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it, if it makes logical sense and you're a covenant keeper and she's a covenant keeper, you should get married. That's, that's what makes logical sense. And if, if she's an ax murderer, then I think heavenly father would probably say, yeah, you, you probably shouldn't marry her. But if she's keeping her covenants and you're keeping your covenants, there might be something you don't like about her. And so that's fine. You don't have to marry her, but you don't blame it on divine command. Yeah. Yeah. It is the, uh, I've heard it termed the spiritual trump card, right? Yeah, it's, it's horrible. Oh, you can't can't argue with that, right? And that's that's what we do all the time, especially in a culture where we pray in classrooms and we we want them to pray, we want them to receive revelation. And this is a this is a scary place to be. You don't want to say to someone, "Well, you didn't receive revelation," but then sometimes you have to say that mm-hmm. you didn't receive revelation the right way. And and then for me to say that, boy, I better make sure I'm grounded. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then as far as egoism, you talk about Nephi where you yeah. sort of turn it back on yourself. Like, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Like, don't drag me into this. I mean, what are some other examples of well, egoism Hinkley, and leadership? President Hinckley spent a lot of time in that quadrant. So if you listen to his church talks, he says, go out in the world and take care of your family. Get your life in order. Then come serve in the church. That's an egoist type argument. Mm. The airplanes use it all the time, right? Put the, put the mask on you first and then put it on somebody else. So it's not, it sounds bad ego. Ooh. I don't yeah. want to be in that quadrant, but it's valid. And I think we're so scared to be in that quadrant that sometimes as church leaders, we sacrifice our families for the church. And that is not doctrinal. And when I was called as bishop, I told the stake president, said, yeah, we'll do this. But, you know, if my family can't do this, we got it. We're out. Mm. People are like, <gasps> well, listen, I, I, I understand. And I take this responsibility important, but no one's going to make an argument that my family's not most important. So why would I, why would I serve as bishop and lose my child? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I'm not, I'm not able to spend enough time. I was a bishop's orphan and uh, I just didn't, that's not something I, I want to be. Yeah. 
And I would imagine with this egoism, it can even go too far the other way where people are, they're just constantly going back to, well, my family, you know, family's most important. I got to be home with my family. No, (laughs) I can't hurt that service activity. My family. You see the dichotomy here with each, in each quadrant, you have these extremists and you can, you're exactly right. You can use that. Well, my family's most important. Therefore I won't serve there. You're right. It's such a hard balance and there is no rules. There's no it's, it's an ambiguity. I love it. Yeah. I love gray. It's messy. I love con. I love just this complexity that I love um, feeling uncomfortable mm-hmm. and not knowing what to do. Yeah. That's the coolest thing, but it's so uncomfortable and people want rules. Yeah. So you give them rules. They're happy. Yeah. So the general principle I'm thinking of, you know, we recognize where people are at and, you know, there's nothing we can do to, there's no secret magic weapon to change them or to shift them to different contexts. They sort of have to get them, get themselves there yeah. on their own. But, um, any, any advice in the context of being in a presidency, maybe you're a counselor and the bishop or stake president is maybe an obligation theorist or consequentialist. And there's sort of that friction there. That's so common. Yeah. That's so common. If you understand an obligation theorist, you just talk about rules. You don't talk about consequences. Your, your discussion needs to be about rules. You can turn and change an attitude and an opinion, but you have to do it the right way. And the, the mistake we make is you have an obligation who's maybe the bishop and you're a consequentialist counselor trying to argue against that with your consequences. That's never going to work. Yeah. And the obligation will just say no, and you'll be offended because he's not listening to you. Mm-hmm. But he's still a good man. He's still receiving revelation. It's just... He's not hearing your consequences because you're not in his quadrant. So you've got to realize, wait a minute. Okay, let's talk about this rule. And if we just kind of understood that, I think we'd be way more empathetic with people. Yeah. But you sometimes aren't going to win the argument. And there's going to be friction there. It's (laughs) not like you can avoid it. Yeah. 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 And would you say like, you know, me kind of reconciling the fact that I'm more of a consequentialist. I mean, once you kind of realize where you're at, do you sort of need to push yourself in one direction or another, like try a different quadrant. You have to step in different quadrants. I, my nature would, uh, I'm just rules. I'm bothered by rules, but here's the thing I struggle with. I'm an obligationist in my personal life. I adhere to very strict principles, but as Bishop, I'm a consequentialist and everywhere else as a teacher or friend, I'm a consequentialist, which I don't like to put the same sort of expectation on somebody else. Yeah. I'm not comfortable there. So that's a bit of a problem for me sometimes is I live a very strict obligationist life with a consequentialist attitude toward decisions. And sometimes people need consequences. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, there's no I don't want to give them to them. But, and so I always call a counselor who's an obligation theorist. Hmm. It's essential for me hmm. because I need that. Input. And they can help you talk it through. Right? I need that input. So where I'm saying, no, we're going to let them off. They said, no, we need to do this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, it's actually, that's, that's valid. So I embrace the differences of opinion. Yeah. Um, but it is hard if I have an obligations counselor, if I disagree with him, that's a hard spot for him. Yeah. I, and I feel bad. Yeah. And sometimes I just, I, I do, I just, I don't know, I'm going to do it this way. And, and I hope his testimony is strong enough to say, well, that's against the rule, Bishop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you're the bishop. And I would imagine in some cases, you know, you being the consequentialist bishop, you're sometimes turned into an advocate for the con- consequentialist individuals in your ward when a rule comes down or, and maybe somebody is sent home from their mission and you don't necessarily agree with why they were sent home because right. the mission president thought one thing. So you can take it for what it is and turn to that person and, and have empathy and say, Hey, you know, let's, let's talk through this. Yeah, let's let's not, not worry about yeah. the reason. The fact that it was decided, okay, that's past us. Let's not, let's not argue about the reason, but let's, yeah. what can we move forward? And then you back to the very first thing we talked about, you know, a mission is not a saving ordinance. So this idea that we have about, I mean, sent home and that's the end of the world. It's not a saving ordinance. And I just, I have a real cultural issue with the following statement. <laughs> Buckle up. Here we go. <laughs> we drop our missionaries off at the temple on their way to the mission. We give them a mission call. We rush them to get the priesthood and we rush them to the temple and we send them on the mission because the mission is this culminating event. That is false. The temple is what we do. Mm-hmm. The temple is who we are. Yeah, Why do we drop our path. missionaries off the temple? We go to the temple. We live a life to make covenants to be in the temple. Once we make the covenants of the temple, if we want to serve a mission, okay, yeah. it needs to be switched. 
it needs to be switched. So parents will stop freaking out. Well, I was, that was rude, but people stop freaking out about missions. I'm like, are they temple worthy? Are you temple worthy? If he comes home early, I say, are you temple worthy? Yes. Then I don't care mm-hmm. about anything else. And if you're, if you're a sister, you need to go to the temple. You aren't commanded to go on a mission. If you're a brother, yeah, you got to go to the temple. And then you got to go on a mission. You're commanded it. If you can, if you're able. Yeah. But the temple, 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 that's, that's the focus. Yeah. And, and leaders have a lot of power to make that yes. focus. Right. Yeah. So, so coming home from mission early when I'm like, I don't care. Are you temple worthy? If you're not temple worthy, then that's what we've got to do. Yeah. That's where my focus is. I'm envisioning a family gathering in a family room and inviting the neighbors over and they are there to announce what temple they're going to, right? Like, oh man, <laughs> rather than where they're going on the mission. Cause that's Wouldn't like, that be uh, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that remind yeah. us of what it really is that we're supposed to do? Yeah. Cause that's the saving ordinance. There's six of them, mm-hmm. right? Baptism, Holy ghost, priesthood. If you're a man or at least ordained to the priesthood endowment and sealing. Mm-hmm. And then the sacrament renews all those, mm-hmm. whichever one you've done up to that point. That's that's at least that's the teachings we understand. Mission's not on there. Mm-hmm. My boys, I encourage them to go on a mission. I think it's a commandment. And if they're able, they go. But but we we spend our emphasis on the temple. That's great. That's really helpful. Anything as far as the the brain and you know, pornography struggles that we haven't mentioned that we were that oh, yeah. we haven't covered. I mean, is that another podcast? That's itself? a whole other podcast. But let me just say this. <laughs> let me give you one last analogy. I love motorcycles. I've ridden my motorcycle over a hundred thousand miles. My dad grew up on motorcycles. We ride across the nation. We just love cross country riding. So when I was 16 years old, I wanted a motorcycle and I wanted a bullet bike, the fastest one. I said, dad, I want this motorcycle. It's some, I'm of age. We're motorcycle people. He says, you want that bullet bike? And I said, yep. He says, what's your argument? Well, dad, I won't drive it fast. I just want to know that I can. I just want the, the, the knowledge that if I wanted to drive fast, I could, but I promise I won't. Well, my dad looks at my 16 year old brain and says, you're getting a scooter. <laughs> and that makes complete sense because I don't have the cognitive ability to not self-destruct. I mean, I'm 16 years old. I do not have the ability to utilize agency like an adult. I just don't. I haven't processed. I don't have the myelination in the prefrontal cortex. I don't have the growth. So why in the world would you give a child a bullet bike of a phone with no restrictions at age 10 mm. when they have no ability to not self-destruct? That's foreign to me. It makes no sense whatsoever. I just can't fathom why we as parents who are digital immigrants would give our digital native kids full access to a bull bike that will destroy them. Mm, that's helpful. And I just love the recognizing from a neurological perspective that that brain is developing still from that age yeah. 10 to 25 ish. Right. That, yeah. And so it can be so frustrating as I would imagine as a YSA Bishop to have constantly just be bombarded with this, but just recognize, Hey, they're sort of in this really volatile phase, right? I can't help. I mean, they're coming to me. I mean, it's, I need parental input much sooner. When I give challenges in my classes, I use the benefit of extra credit because I've seen people bite off their students, bite off their pinky for extra credit. So I just say, (laughs) look, I'll give you 25 points extra credit. If you just, you, you have to eliminate a digital device for the whole semester. You have to prove it to me. If it's your fake book account, then I want to put in the password and you can't access. If you're InstaSlam, I want to do that. Your Snap crap, you give that to me and I lock them out for one semester. Uh-huh. And the feedback I get is so overwhelming. They're like, I've just so, so wanted to do that. I'm so glad someone did it for me. And the extra credit. I know it. an extra credit is the craziest <laughs> thing, but they just love that they had the restriction because they just simply weren't able to. And it's overwhelming to me when I see that because I think, oh, and, and my kids, you know, I don't, we don't want to toot our own horn, but of course we're not going to give that to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just say, well, you, you, my friends have it. I don't care. You should have chose a different family. Yeah. And that, that shuts them <laughs> up and they know their siblings haven't had it. And, and it's, it's just, it's, we give them an iPhone because they, so they don't get beat up. Yeah. But it texts and calls. They, yeah. They didn't, we lock it down nothing else. Yeah. Because, um, like my dad, he gave me a scooter. I, gr- I eventually graduated up to where I could have had a bullet bike, but you know what? I didn't want it. My brain had developed to the point where I realized I don't want to kill myself. Yeah. So you can give them stages of, um, and if they abuse that, you take it away. And, and we have to be more proactive as parents. We, we have got to learn this digital world yeah. 
Cool. Well, this has been a phenomenal discussion. I appreciate it. Uh, the last question I have for you is, as you have had opportunity to serve as a bishop and state presidency and as a bishop, again, uh, being that leader, how has that made you a better follower of Jesus Christ? Yeah, I am humbled because to be a God, you have to be completely forgiving and loving, even when people do dumb things. And um, I have to do that as bishop. I just, I have to love, I have to forgive my own children. The demand of my wife is, I have to be sensitive to that. It's so difficult. We just, we don't, we don't give enough credit to our, our poor wives who have to listen to the people rip on the bishop or not be happy with the decision or, so I've just, I'm humble. I don't want to do the wrong thing. And I balance between arrogance and confidence and ego and knowledge and sometimes it's my knowledge gets in the way of the spirit and I recognize this but I'm just overwhelmed that God still loves me and he allows me to to lead despite all my weaknesses what it's so overwhelming essentially a, a friend of mine would always say he lets us play with his fine china and we're all thumbs Hey, that concludes my interview with Jason Hunt. I hope you were inspired by some of the things he said, and and maybe you disagree with something maybe Jason said or something I said. And to be honest, that's just okay. We want to create a forum here where where diverse thoughts and perspectives are shared so that it can get us thinking. We're not trying to convince anybody of anything, but we do hope that you think about it and formulate your own opinion, your own perspective, and your own application in how you carry out this information that uh, you heard. I I thought it was fantastic. I was inspired by it, about these moral theories, and a great way to to see, to a great perspective of how we can approach our gospel experience, right? Now, if you know of anybody else that I should reach out to and interview, I've I've been getting a lot of emails from various people saying, interview this person, that person, and uh, I obviously can't get around to everybody. I could literally do an episode a day, but you'd be so overwhelmed with content that you wouldn't know what to do about it. So we try and stick to one episode a week and really find the best value, the best content out there. And so if you know someone who I should interview, it would be great for you to go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and just send me a message. And we'll put it on the list. And every few months, we have a community that goes through and considers the names on that list, who we should reach out to. And uh, a lot of times we just go uh, by gut feeling. Other time we look at background and expertise and uh, nonetheless... It's led us to some fantastic interviews that you can actually go back and listen to at leadingsaints.org or just in the podcast feed wherever you're listening to this episode. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 and join the Core Leader community today. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.